Chapter 30 of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 30 It was William Sweetapple, the gardener's boy, who informed Lois that Claude had come back, throwing the information casually over his shoulder as he watered the lawn. See Mr. Claude today, um? Oh, no, you didn't, Sweetapple, Lois contradicted. Mr. Claude is in the West. He may be in the West now, um, but he wasn't at twenty-five minutes past two this afternoon. Sudden fear brought Lois down a step or two of the portico, over the Corinthian pillars of which roses clambered in early July profusion. In white, in a broad-brimmed winter-halter hat, from which a floating green veil hung over her shoulders and down her back, her strong, slim figure seemed to have gained in fulfilment of herself, even in the weeks that Thor had been away. "'Where did you see him, sweet apple? Or think you saw him?' Sweet apple turned the nozzle of the hose so as to develop a crown of spray, with which he bedewed the roses of all colours grouped in a great central bed. "'I didn't think him. It was him.' "'Well, where?' "'See him first going to the woods leading up to Dot Rock. "'That was when I was on my way to Lawyer Petley's.' "'Did you see him twice?' "'See him again as I come back. "'He was down in the road by that time, "'looking up toward Old Man Fay's, "'Adley B. Obson's place, that is to be. "'Old Man Fay's got a quit. "'Found him moved already. "'You knew that, didn't you, um? "'It was because Lois was really alarmed by this time "'that she said, "'Oh, you must have been mistaken, Sweet Apple.' Mo oh, just as you say, um, sweet apple agreed, but I see him, it was him. She withdrew again, reseating herself in the shade of the semicircular open porch protecting the side door, where she had been writing on a pad. Though so near the roadway, a high growth of shrubs screened her from all but the passers up and down Willoughby's Lane. At this time of the year they were relatively few, many of the residents of County Street having already gone to the seaside or the mountains. Lois enjoyed the seclusion thus afforded her, and the tranquillity. The garden and her poorer neighbours gave an outlet to her need for physical activity, while in the solitude of the house, and in that wider solitude created by the absence of all the Willoughbys and Mastermans, something within her was being healed. It was being healed, but healed in a way that left her changed. The change was manifest in what she said, when, with the pad on her knee again, she began to write. I am deeply moved, dear Thor, by your last letter from Colorado Springs, and would gladly say something adequate in response to it. When I can, I will, if I ever can. As to that, the decisive word must be, with time. I cannot hurry it. I can give you no assurance now. Now I feel—but why should I repeat it? An illusion once dispelled can rarely be brought back. Still less can you replace it by reality. What we are looking for— is a substitute for love. You may have found it, but I have not. I can accept your definition of love as a giving out, a pouring forth, a desire to do and to contribute. But it is precisely here that I failed to respond to the test. There is something in me stagnated or damned up. My heart feels like a well that has gone dry. I have nothing to yield. I understand what Rosie Fay said to me the day when I talked to her on Duck Rock. I'm empty. I've given all I had to give. It was less blameworthy on her part than on mine, because she, poor little thing, had given so much, and I so little. And yet my supply seems to be exhausted. It must have been thin and shallow to begin with. 
as I feel at present it would take a new creation to replenish it. With regard to my calling forth what is best in you, dear Thor, well, anyone would do that, or anything. You are one of those who have nothing but the best to offer. Do you know what Uncle Sim said of you last night? Thor is always on the side of the angels, and though he makes mistakes, they'll rescue him. They will, dear Thor, I'm sure of it. They may rescue us both. Even as at present, I don't see how. Having written this much, she paused to ask what she should say further. Should she speak of his coming home? No. Since the address he had given her indicated that he was on his way, it was best that he should take the responsibility of his own return. Should she tell him that Sweet Apple thought he had seen Claude? No, it would alarm him without doing any good. If Claude was back, he was back. Besides which, Sweet Apple might be wrong. So she signed her name with her usual significant abruptness, sealing the envelope and addressing it. Her hesitation came in putting on the stamp. Somehow the letter seemed too cold to send. She didn't want it to be cold, only to be sincere. Sincerity during these weeks of solitude had become a sort of obsession. She couldn't tell him that she had forgiven him as long as resentment lingered in her heart, and yet she was anxious not to wound him more than she could help. Wounding him, she wounded herself more deeply, for in spite of everything, his pain was hers. Slowly she tore the letter open again, to a sunset chorus of birds of whose song she had just become conscious. From tree to tree they fluted to one another, and answered back, now with a reckless, passionate warble, now with a long, liquid love-note. It was the voice of the rich world that lay around her, a world of flowers and lawns and meadows and upland woods, and cool, deep shades and mellowing light. But it was also the voice that had accompanied her into the enchanted land on that winter's day when Thor had kissed her wrist. The day seemed now immeasurably far away in time, and the enchanted land had been left behind her. But the voice was still there, fluting, calling, reminding, entreating, with an insistence that almost made her weep. She wrote hurriedly in postscript, "'If there was ever anything I could do for you, dear Thor, perhaps what I used to feel would come back to me. If it only would, if I could only be great and generous and inexacting as you would be. I want to be Thor, darling, I long to be, but I am like a person paralysed whose limbs no longer answer to his will. I pray for recovery and restoration, but will it ever come?' As encouragement to Thor, she was no more satisfied with this than with what she had said earlier, but it expressed all she could allow herself to say. Anything more would have permitted him to infer such things as he had permitted her to infer, an accident that must have no repetition. She ended the note definitely, getting it ready for the post. She was still engaged in doing so when, the crunching of footsteps causing her to lift her head, she saw Claude. Having come round to the side portico on a hint from William Sweetapple, he stood at a little distance, smiling. He was smiling, but as a dead man might smile. Lois could neither rise nor speak, from awe. Claude himself could neither speak nor advance. He stood like a spectre, but a spectre who has been in hell. The very smile was that of the spectre who has no right to come out of hell, and yet has come.
Nace was not precisely troubled. She was terrified. If Claude had only spoken a word or taken a step forward, it would have broken the spell that held her dazed and dumb. But he did nothing. He only stood and smiled that awful smile which expressed more anguish than any rictus of pain. He stood just as he came into sight, on turning the corner of the house, with the many colours of the rose-bed at his left hand. It was exactly like this, she had always imagined, that disembodied spirits or astral forms made their appearances to portend death. She got possession of her faculties at last. Lord, She could just whisper it. He continued to smile as he advanced and came up the steps, but it was not till he was actually beside her that he said, in a voice which might also have been that of a dead man, "'You didn't expect me, did you?' She remembered afterwards that they neither shook hands nor exchanged any of the usual forms of greeting, but at the minute it didn't seem natural that they should. Her own tone was as strained as his, as she answered awesomely, "'No. Sit down, Claude. When did you come?' Throwing his hat on the floor, he dropped wearily into a deck-chair and closed his eyes. With the sharp profile grown extraordinarily white and thin, the dead man expression terrified her again. She wished he would raise his head and look at her, look more like life. All he did was to open his eyes heavily as he replied, "'Got back yesterday.' It was less from interest than from the desire to get on the plane of actual things that she asked, "'Where are you staying?' "'Stepped to the house last night. "'Old Mags, the caretaker, has the keys, so I made him let me in.' "'But are you going to stay any time?' "'Might as well. Don't see why not.' There was so much to say, and so much she was afraid to say, that she hardly knew with what to begin. "'Weren't you?' she ventured timidly. "'Weren't you having a good time?' His answer, as he lay back with eyes closed again, was another of his smiles— only dimmer now, with a faint, bitter sweetness. She knew it was like asking a man if his pain is better when it is killing him. Nevertheless, the ground of common, practical things was the only one to keep to, so she went on. But you won't like sleeping at the house every night, with no one in it. Don't you want to come here? He shook his head. No, thanks. Mrs. Maggs will make my bed and give me breakfast. That's all I need. Get the rest of my meals in town. "'But you'll stay to dinner now, won't you?' He lifted himself up in his chair at last, his face taking on its first look of life. "'Thor be there?' "'Why, no. Thor's away. In the West. Didn't you know?' He started nervously. "'Away in the West? Not looking for me?' She tried to smile. "'Of course not. He went to attend the Medical Congress in Minneapolis. He's on his way home now.' "'When do you expect him?' "'Oh, not at once. I don't know when. He's taking his time.' He studied her a while, with eyes that seemed to read her secret. "'What for?' "'Not to see the country, I suppose. My last letter was from Colorado Springs.' He dropped back into the chair with a tired sigh of relief. "'All right, I'll stay to dinner. Thanks.' She allowed him to rest, asking no more questions that she could help, till dinner was over, and they had come out again on the portico, so that he might have his cigar in the cool, scented evening air. She was more at ease with him, too, now that she could no longer see the suffering in his pinched, emaciated face. "'Claude, why did you come home?' 
he withdrew the cigar from his lips just long enough to say, "'Because I couldn't stay away.' "'Why couldn't you?' "'Because I couldn't.' "'Don't you think it would have been well to make the effort?' "'What was the good of making the effort when I couldn't keep it up?' "'But you kept it up for a while.' "'Not after—' "'After I heard.' "'Heard about Rosie?' He made an inarticulate sound of assent. "'What did you hear?' "'I heard what she did.' "'How? Who told you?' "'And that chump Biddy Cheever wrote me.' "'How did he know it had anything to do with you?' "'Oh, I was fool enough to tell him about her once, and so he caught on to it. Put two and two together, I suppose, when he heard that—that—' She seized the opportunity to make the first incision toward getting in her point. "'That she threw herself into the pond? "'Did he say that Jim Breen dived after her and brought her up?' "'He answered indifferently. "'He said someone did. He didn't say who. "'It was Jim. He saved her.' "'As the statement evoked no response, she continued, "'Claude, what did you come home for?' "'Again he withdrew his cigar from his mouth, looking at her obliquely. "'To marry her.' She allowed some time to elapse before saying, "'Claude, I don't think you will.' "'Oh, yes, I shall.' "'What makes you so sure?' "'Because I am.' "'I'm not, or rather, if I am sure, it's the other way.' He sprang up, seizing her by the arm, over which there was nothing but a gauze scarf by way of covering. "'Lois, for God's sake, what do you mean? You know something. Tell me. She hasn't gone away with Thor, has she?' She, too, sprang up, shaking off his hand as if it had been a serpent. "'You fool! Don't touch me! She'll marry Jim Breen! She'll be in love with him in a week or two. It was all over in an instant, but the blaze in her eyes seemed literally to knock him down. He fell back into the deck-chair again, though he sat astride on it with his feet on the floor, covering his face with his hands. "'I beg your pardon, Lois,' he muttered humbly. "'I don't know what I'm saying.' "'No, you don't,' she agreed. "'speaking breathlessly because the leaping of her heart was so wild. "'But that's hardly an excuse for taking leave altogether of your senses.' "'He continued to mutter into his hands. "'I'm crazy. I'm drunk. I'm stark mad. I'm... "'Oh, Lewis, if you knew what I've been through, you wouldn't mind.' "'The hot anger that had rolled over her with a wrath such as she had never felt before "'began to roll away again, leaving her sick and shivering.' It was an excuse for going into the house to find a cloak, and for getting the minute's respite necessary to self-control. To regain it, to overcome that throb of her being, of which the after-effect was a faintness unto death, she was obliged to walk steadily, holding her head high. She was obliged, too, to repent of the tigress impulse with which she had turned on Claude, flinging in his face that for which she had meant to prepare him by degrees. The fact that it had seemingly passed over his head was no palliation to the outrage. As she mounted the stairs and went to her room, she repeated her own formula. Nothing that isn't kind and well thought out beforehand. What she had said had been neither well thought out nor kind, but the temptation had been overwhelming. For the instant it had seemed secondary that Thor hadn't taken Rosie to the west, since Claude, who knew so much more of the inner history of the episode than she did herself, had thought such an action possible. More clearly than ever before she saw that some appalling struggle for the possession of the little creature must have taken place, and that it had been going on during those months when life was apparently so peaceful 
and she had been living in her fool's paradise. It was not till she had lost the fight that Thor had come to her in the snowbound woods, with the twitter of birds and the deep music of the treetops accompanying those half-truths she had been eager to believe. She herself had been fatuous and vain in assuming that he could love her, but if there was little to say for her, there was nothing at all to be said for him. He had been the more false for the reason that, as far as he went, he had been sincere. It was his very sincerity that had tricked her. Less than that at any time since the day when he had stammered out his futile explanations did she feel it possible to pardon him. But there was something else. Now, if she chose, she could know. In his present state of mind, Claude would betray anything. She had only to question him, to throw the emphasis adroitly here or there, and the whole story would come out. It was like having a key come into her hands, a key that would unlock all those mysteries which were her terror. She was still irresolute, however, as to using it, after she had taken an old opera cloak from a wardrobe, thrown it over her shoulders, and gone downstairs again. She found Claude as she had left him, astride on the deck-chair, his face in his hands, the burning end of the cigar that protruded between his fingers making a point of light. The abject attitude moved her to pity in spite of everything. She herself remained standing, her tall figure thrown into dim relief between two of the right Corinthian pillars of the portico. By standing, it seemed to her obscurely, she could more easily escape if any such awful revelation as she was afraid of were to spring on her against her will. She could almost feel it waiting for her in the depths of the heavy-scented darkness. For the minute, however, the folly of Claude's return was the matter immediately to be dealt with. To get him to go away again was the end to be attained. It was with this in view, as well as with a measure of compassion, that she said, "'You poor Claude, you have been through things, haven't you?' The answer came laconically. "'Been in hell.' "'Yes, that's what I thought,' she agreed simply. "'I thought it the instant you came round the corner this afternoon. "'But why? For what reason, exactly?' "'He lifted his haunted face, "'stammering out his recital in a way that reminded her of Thor. "'She could see that he had profited by his mistake of a few minutes earlier, "'and that just as Thor had tried to tell Claude's story without involving his own, "'so Claude was endeavouring to spare her by doing the same thing.' Being able to supply the blanks more accurately now than on the former occasion, she found a kind of poignant, torturing amusement in fitting her knowledge in. He began with his first meeting with Rosie, describing the scene. He had not taken the adventure seriously, not any more than he had taken a dozen similar. Girls like that could generally be thrown off as easily as they were taken on, and they bore you no ill-will for the change. As a matter of fact, a new flirtation generally began where the old one ended, which made part of the fun for the girl as for the man. He was speaking of respectable girls, Lois was to understand, village girls, shop girls, and others of the higher wage-earning variety, who didn't mind showing a spice of devil before they married and settled down. Lots of them didn't, and were no worse for it in the end. It had not occurred to him that Rosie would be different from others of the class, or that she would take in deadly earnest what was no more than play for him. When he had made this discovery, he had tried to withdraw, but only with the result of becoming involved more deeply. Over the processes by which he was led finally to pledge himself, he grew incoherent, as also over the signs which caused him to suspect that Rosie was playing fast and loose with him. 
his mutterings as to somebody else was in love with her, and who was ready to put up money, threw her back on memories of his uneasy questions concerning Thor on the evenings after the return from the honeymoon. It was with a sense of the key slipping into the lock that she said, "'And that made you jealous?' "'As the devil. It was because he did it that I knew I couldn't give her up, that I'd never let her go.' There was sincere curiosity in her tone as she asked the question, "'But, Claude, why did you?' "'Because she lied to me.' "'Oh, and had you never lied to her?' He mumbled something about that not being the same thing. She swore to me that there'd never be any put-up job between her and—and— and She helped him out. The—the the other person. She could hear the key grating as it turned. And was there? He made the impatient circular movement of his head, as though his collar chafed him, with which he was familiar. He was gaining time in order to use tact. Oh, I don't know. There was—there was something. Whatever it was, she denied it— when all the while they were... She felt obliged fully to turn the key. She knew how perilous the question might be, but it was beyond her to keep it back. They were what, Claude? They were trying to catch me in a trap. It was like the door into the Hall of Mysteries opening, but only to make disclosures dimmer and more mystifying still. The postponement of dreadful certainties enabled her, however, to say with some slight relief, But this... "'This other person couldn't have been very fond of her himself "'if he if he gave her up to you.' "'He bowed his head still lower into his hands, "'muttering towards the floor. "'Oh, I don't know. I, I don't care now. "'Anyhow, she'd lied to me, and—' "'He lifted his haggard eyes again. "'And I jumped at it. I, I saw the way out, and I jumped at it. "'I told her, I, I told her I'd, I'd go and marry someone else.' "'Did you mean Elsie Darling?' "'He nodded speechlessly.' It was to come back again to the point which her anger had caused her to miss that she went forward and laid her hand on his shoulder kindly. "'I would, Claude, if I were you,' she said in a matter-of-fact voice. "'She'd make you a good wife.' "'No one will make me a good wife now,' he said hoarsely. "'I'm going to marry Rosie. I'll marry her if it puts me in the gutter. I'll marry her if I never have a cent.' She went back to her place between the pillars, leaning against one of them. "'But, Claude,' she reasoned, "'would that do any good? "'Would it make either of you happy "'after all that's been said and done?' "'He seemed to writhe. "'I don't care anything about that. "'I've got to do it.' "'You haven't got to do it "'if Rosie doesn't want it. "'It's got nothing to do with her.' "'She looked at him in astonishment. "'Nothing to do with her? "'What do you mean?' "'He tried to explain further.' He had not primarily come back to atone for the suffering he had inflicted on Rosie, or because his love for her was such that he couldn't live without her. He had come back to propitiate the demon within himself. The demon or the god, he was not sure which it was, for it possessed the attributes of both. He had come back to escape the chastisement his soul inflicted on itself, because without coming back he could no longer be a man. He had come back because the furies had driven him with their whip of knotted snakes, and he could do nothing but yield to their hounding. If Lois thought that travelling in the West was beer and skittles when hunted and scourged by yourself like that, well, she'd better try it and see. What she must understand already was that Rosie and happiness had become minor considerations. He would sacrifice both to regain a measure of his self-respect. 
He had never supposed, and he didn't suppose now, that Rosie would be happy in marrying him, but that was no longer the point. The demon or the god must be appeased, at no matter what cost to the victim. He made these explanations not straightforwardly or concisely, but with rambling digressions that took him over half the Middle West. He described, or hinted at, all sorts of scenes, peopled by gay young businessmen and garnished by pretty girls, in which he could have enjoyed himself had it not been for the enemy in his heart. It wasn't merely that he had thrown over Rosie with a cruelty that made her try to kill herself, and still less was, was it that he couldn't live down his love when once he set about it. It was that the Claude who might have been was strangled and slain, leaving him no inner fellowship but with the Claude who was. Reviving the Claude who might have been was like reviving a corpse, and yet there was nothing to do but make the attempt. "'I'm a gentleman, what?' he asked, raising his white face pitifully. "'I must act like a gentleman, what?' "'Yes, but if it's too late, Claude, for that particular thing—' "'Oh, but it isn't—it won't be, not when she sees me.' "'It might be. And if she doesn't want it, Claude, I don't see why you—' "'Don't see why, because you're not me. If you were, you would. A woman hasn't a man's sense of honour, anyhow.' She let this pass with an inward smile, in order to say— "'But, Claude, suppose you can't do it?' He twisted his neck with his customary chafing, irritated movement. "'I'll do it, or croak.' "'Oh, but that's nonsense.' "'To you, not to me. You haven't been through the mill that I've been ground up in. You don't know what it is to have been born, born a gentleman, and to have blasted yourself into human remains. That's what I am now, not a man, say nothing of a gentleman, just human remains, too awful to look at.' She tried to reason with him. "'But, Claude, you mustn't exaggerate things or put the punishment out of proportion to the crime. Admitting that what you did to Rosie was dishonourable, but brutal, if you like. Oh, it isn't that. It's what I did to myself. Can't you see?' She saw, but not with the intensity of Claude himself. Sitting down at last, she let him talk again. He'd felt something shattered in him, so he said at the very minute when he had turned to leave the cucumber-house on the day of the final rupture. He knew already that he was a cad, and that he was doing what only a cad would have done, but he had expected the remorse to pass. He had known himself for a cad on other occasions, and yet had outlived the sense of shame. That he should outlive it again he had taken for granted, though he knew that this time he couldn't do it without suffering. He was willing to take the suffering. He was not especially unwilling that Rosie should take it too. In her way she had been as much to blame as he was. Though he didn't question the sincerity of her love for him, she had plotted and schemed to catch him, because from her point of view he was a rich man's son, and even so had had moments of disloyalty. He found it not unreasonable to expect her to share the responsibility for what had overtaken her. But she, too, would outlive the pain of it, and follow his example in marrying someone else. Lois felt her opportunity to have fully come. "'I think she will. She'll marry Jim Breen, if you'll only leave her alone.' "'Oh, rot!' The tone expressed the degree of importance he attached to this possibility. He went on again, discursively, incoherently, covering much of the same ground, but with new and illuminating details, details of which the background was still a jumble of suppers and dances and journeys, but in which the god, or the demon, gave him no rest. 
his distaste for diversion having declared itself from the day of his starting for Chicago, he had whipped up an appetite to counteract it. Availing himself of the freedom of a young man, plentifully applied with money for the first time in his life, he had made use of all the resources with which strange and exciting cities could furnish him to get back his zest in light-heartedness. The result was not in pleasure, but in disgust, and a horror of himself that grew. It grew from the beginning like some giant, poisonous weed. It grew while he was in Chicago. It grew with each further stage of his journey, in St. Louis, in Cincinnati, in Los Angeles. It was in Los Angeles that he had received Billy Cheever's letter with the news of Rosie's mad leap, and he knew for a certainty that the only thing to be done was to turn his face eastward. Whatever happened, and whoever suffered, he must redeem himself. Redemption had become for him a need more urgent than food, more vital than life. Though he didn't use the word, though his terms were simple and boyish and slangy, Lois could see that his stress was that which sent pilgrims to the Holy Sepulchre and drove Judas to go and hang himself. Redemption lay in marrying Rosie and restoring his honour and bringing the thought who might have been back to life. Indeed, it was difficult to tell at times which of the two was slain, whether the Claude who might have been, or the other Claude, so distraught and involved were his appeals. But, beyond marrying Rosie and keeping his word, being a gentleman, as he expressed it, his outlook didn't extend. Any damn thing that liked could happen, when that atoning act had been accomplished. There were so many repetitions in his turns of thought that Lois ended by following them no more than listlessly. Not that she had ceased to be interested, but her mind was occupied with other phases of the drama. She remembered what she had so often heard, that in the Masterman's there was this extraordinary strain of idealism of which no one could foresee the turn it would take. She knew the traditions of the great-grandfather whose heart had broken on finding that America was not the regenerated land he hoped for. Tales were still current in the village of old Dr. Masterman, his son, who through sheer confidence in his fellow-men never paid anyone he owed, and never collected money from anyone who owed it to him. Archie Masterman, in the next generation, was supposed to have taken the altruistic tendency by the throat in himself, and choked it down. But Uncle Sim was a byword of eccentric goodness throughout the countryside. Now the impasse was manifest in Claude, in this revulsion against his own failure, in this marred and broken vision of a something to which he had not been true. And as for Thor. But here she was tortured and frightened. Who knew what this strange inheritance might be working in him? Who could tell how big and tender and transcending it might become? That it would be transcending and tender and big was certain. If poor, frivolous, futile Claude could feel like this, could feel that he must redeem his soul, though any damn thing that liked should happen as the price of his redemption, in Thor the yearning would outflank her range. Might not the secret of secrets be that? Might not that which she had been seeing as treachery to herself be no more than a conflict of aspirations? If Claude, with his blurred distortion of the divine in him, served no other purpose, he at least threw a light on Thor. Thor, too, was a masterman. Thor, too, was born to the vision, to the longing after the nationally perfect that had become legendary since the time of the great-grandfather, to the sweet neighbourly affection that ran through all the tales of that man's son, 
to the sturdy righteousness of Uncle Sim, to the standards of honour for which poor Claude had fallen as angels fall, and to God only knew what high prompting strangled and vitiated in his father. Thor was heir to it all, with something of his own to boot, something strong, something patient, something laborious and loyal, something long-suffering and winning and meek, that might have marked the leader of a rebellious people, or a pagan, sceptic Christ. Her mind was so full of this ideal of the man against whom, and also for whom, her heart was hot, that she made no effort to detain Claude, when, after long silence, he picked up his hat and slipped away into the darkness. End of chapter 30